Welcome to Libre Lounge, a podcast about free software, free culture, and all the other interesting aspects of user freedom. With Christopher Lemmer Weber and Serge Broklowski. Welcome to Libre Lounge, the podcast about free software, free culture, and anything else that strikes our fancy. Yes, yes. I'm Serge. And I'm Chris Weber. So here we are. Um, since this is our first podcast, uh, we'll just take you through what we're going to do. We'll talk about maybe some news items, talk about something that we want to go into some depth about. Sometimes we'll have interviews um, and basically just just have a nice, relaxed conversation about free software and free culture. Yep, yep. So do you want to start with the news? Uh Sure. Uh, what news are we going with? Um, well, why don't we start with this uh, podcast? Uh, sorry, this uh, talk that I recently saw. Uh, it was it was yet another one of those Linux sucks talks. Uh, this one was called Linux Sucks Forever. Uh, it was filmed at Linux Fest Northwest. I'll have a link uh, down in the uh, podcast details. Uh, you know, all these these Linux sucks talks tend to follow a, a pattern of, you know, here are some problems with Linux, but they're fixable. Uh, this one was a little different in that it talked about the uh, two issues re- related to uh, Linux and free software in general. One is corporate control and corporate extension, which I think is worth uh, going into some depth about. And the other is just a general feeling of it being more difficult as a person who cares about free software to just have a free software experience without having to specifically look for it. So before we dive in, any thoughts, questions? Yeah, so um, I so I haven't watched the talk. I'm going to give that as a, as a caveat. Uh, um, and so I'm going mostly off of what you've told me. Um, but I think that I, I got enough of a sense uh, of what type of things were being discussed that I think we can talk about the topics. Um, I'll say first off the bat that I'm not in general a fan of the XYZ sucks format uh, for framing things. And the main reason for that is that I think that there's a, there's a tendency in our culture, especially in American culture. I I can't speak for elsewhere of, uh, you know, well, uh, if you look like, uh, you know, like being being kind of brash about things and, you know, being kind of insulting uh, makes you look smart. Uh, and that kind of bugs me. I mean, you get to the kind of Rick and Morty, you know, like, you know, Rick's the smartest person in the universe. And it's partly associated with because he's a jerk. And then people who are fans of the show, you know, might misinterpret that and they might think, aha, then I should be a jerk, you know, and that makes me smart. Right. And it's it's very easy to take this attitude of, you know, well blah, 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 sucks. So that said, you know, uh, you know, the, the, I'm, I, I definitely think that criticizing, uh, free software and the environment that free software is in is, is worthwhile. Yeah, I hear you. There's a, there's a snarkiness that has taken over our culture where, uh, you know, you use the example of Rick and Morty. I think Rick and Morty is interesting example 
especially because Rick is in so many ways a tragic figure, and that gets lost in translation, but I don't want to have a Rick and Morty episode. Uh, but I agree with you that that we, we've we've lost the idea of just having an earnest, honest conversation. I think the the origin of this Linux sucks idea and the talk, because this is, I think, his like 15th talk of this format, is that we are uh, an external culture, right? So there's this greater media landscape or greater, greater community of Windows and Mac users. And here we are, and here we are as, you know, on the outside looking in and being told that our operating system sucks. And usually his talks um, are far more positive. They're, they're okay. You know, we have these problems, but here are all the great things. And here's why the criticism is invalid. This one was different. This one was, um, this one harkened back to something that I don't know if all of our listeners will remember, but it was a document called the Halloween document um, uh, that was pushed originally by Eric Raymond in the late nineties, I believe. And it was a, it was a memo from Microsoft about their strategy for handling this Linux thing. And it wasn't just Linux. It was all about standards and other ways that, that Microsoft could, could get the upper hand. And they, they broke down their strategy into three parts. So their first part was to embrace the new technology, to extend that new technology and then to extinguish. And the way that they would, the way that they would do this is that they would, they would say, Oh yes, we're totally in support of whatever this new thing was. They would create then these proprietary extensions to that thing uh, by which then everyone who would be using the Microsoft version would be getting these new features, but that everyone else then would have to be playing catch up. And then anyone who didn't have the Microsoft version would either be incompatible or be inferior to the Microsoft version. And if they kept iterating over that and making future incompatible versions, they could extinguish the the competition. And that's for, and anyone who's, used Microsoft Word knows that um, at some point, you know, you're using Microsoft Word, you sent, you know, and but that you'll get a document from someone who's using a newer version, and then you'll have to upgrade, and then you'll be on that upgrade train. And they've tried to do that with other standards as well. Back in the 90s, they tried to do that with the web. Um, they were unsuccessful, but they, they did try. Um, they made their own Java, for example. They call it J, and it, it didn't succeed. Um, and they've, um, and so there's, there's ongoing concern that now that Microsoft has become this contributor to Linux, um, that, that they're going to continue to do the, the same thing. And I think you had a uh, specific issue or concern around patents in this area. Yeah. So I'll respond to that in a second. I also want to just say again about the, the Linux sucks or, you know, free software sucks or actually anything sucks meme is not really new to the free software space. The, there was, uh, um, you know, about a decade ago, a fairly popular blog called the Linux haters blog. And I kind of, I kind of like some of the points were good, but on the other hand, like, I don't know, like the, the, that, that framing again is not very appealing to me, but I I do think that the discussion about, you know, is maybe, maybe if we wanted to reframe it as a question, it might be, you know, is free software, you know, uh, compromised in some way or, you know, being uh, subverted in some sort of way. And I think that that, 
you know, it's, I mean, it's kind of ironic in some ways that uh, the, you know, quote unquote Halloween memos, you know, came out around the same time as the, uh, you know, the, the free and open source software kind of divide started in some ways. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, and that, there's been a long debate about whether or not free software and open source are two different things. Certainly they tend to reflect the same software, but, you know, a lot of free software people will say, well, you know, free software is about an ideology. Open source is about uh, a development principle. And, you know, are you focused on software freedom? I, I know plenty of people who just use the term open source because they don't want to have to explain semantics of English. Uh, but there is a certain amount, uh, but regardless of the naming choice, there is a certain amount of making a decision about, you know, what your focus is. Are you, are you here for, you know, the development philosophy or are you here for, uh, the, or are you here for the, uh, um, for the freedom, I guess, you know, for the way that it, it empowers users? Um, it, I, sorry, I haven't actually answered the, the point that you brought up at all. Uh, I went on this other tangent. Uh, but I, I just want to say one more thing about it, which is if you're interested in that discussion, uh, Benjamin Mako Hill did a really nice keynote at Last Libre Planet where he talked about how um, you have these kind of common Z projects uh, like, you know, uh, like free software generally, like, uh, um, and also including things like the, I can't remember what the name of it is, but the the couch surfing uh, movement stuff and, and other things like that and how those can be the, the good ideas, the efficient workflows that we develop can be mined from entities that don't actually care about the philosophy at all or upholding uh, kind of the idealism. And I think that any of these kinds of conversations tend to still reflect that to a certain degree. Now, that said, um, I don't think having corporations work on free software is bad, and I don't think many people would make that argument. Uh, the bigger challenge is whether or not uh, you know we're we're losing uh, whether or not we're losing a focus on user freedom in general, uh, and when in the focus on you know by by kind of embracing the. Uh, corporatization of, uh, I guess I'll say, open source here. And the, I, in some ways, I think of organizations like Microsoft that, or IBM or any of these other really big organizations as kind of being hydras. Uh, you know, they're many-headed beasts, uh, you know, Google as well. Um, and depending on which head you're looking at, they may or may not be playing along well. Um, that said... There's very good reason to be nervous about Microsoft specifically in the way that they engage with free software on, on I think, an organizational policy of, regarding patents. Uh, the Especially, I think people should be concerned and disturbed by how much money Microsoft currently makes by, uh, um, by enforcing uh, its patents in the Android space, despite it not doing any work there. Um, Anyway, I ranted for a while. Back to you. <laughs> well, I want to go back a little bit, and then I'll, I'll come back to what you're saying. So for people in our audience who may not be familiar, who weren't around in the 90s when um, when this distinction came about, 
Um, before 1990, I guess 1997, 1998, there was uh, the free software movement that started as a movement in around 1984. Um, if you look at, if you read the book Hackers, uh, it talks about how the ideology of free software was existed before the free software movement came out, but but free software as a solid ideology solidified in 1984 when Richard Stallman announced the GNU project. And with that announcement, he wasn't just announcing a piece of software, but a whole philosophy around that software. And the idea that he presented was that you should be, you, the individual should have control over your own computer. You should, you should have control and, and therefore control over your own life. And that if, and that as our, interactions became more and more digital and has as our digital lives became more enmeshed with our um, regular lives that control over the computers that that are part of that um, would become essential for living a free a free life uh, that ideology is where things like the gpl come out of the gpl license come out of and in 19 i want to say 1998 but it might have been 97, um, a group of people in the free software community had a meeting and decided that they wanted to present a more corporate-friendly image. This is according to Bruce Perrins, who was in that meeting. Um, and they came up with the term open source, where they took the ideology of free software out of free software and just stuck to the licenses themselves and the, the conditions upon which software could be distributed. And um, that idea of open source has been pushed for many years and, and as many ways and it has in many ways overshadowed free software. Uh, I think you know, coming back to the point when we, when we look at what free software looks like today, um, many people are using free software, but it is harder to, to specifically go out and, and, look for a completely free operating system. So when I started in 1997, um, I started with uh, Red Hat Linux 4.1. And basically I installed this free software operating system. It ran, uh, it worked and I could use it. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't as pretty as Microsoft Windows 95, but it but it was totally functional, and I could do pretty much everything I wanted to do at the time, um, and it was 100% free software. Now, um, if I want to use, um, for example, my my desktop to its full capabilities, I have to use non-free drivers for uh, the video card, for example. Or if you look at the Android phone. You know, the core of Android is the Linux kernel, but there's all this other stuff on top of it, all these Google services that make it functional and, and not just services, but also binary drivers and other things that make it non-free. So it's a free operating system in theory, but there's no practical way to run a fully free phone um, that utilizes every part of the hardware nowadays. Um, and I've got a, a, a Pixel a Google Pixel phone, and there really isn't a, free, a totally free software alternative for that phone. Um, I think that was his point. And, and to get to your point, actually, about Microsoft, Microsoft did announce last month, this is uh, in October of 2018, that they're joining the Open Innovation Network, 
which is a, a collection of, of companies, organizations that have put their patents into a patent pool and said that these patents are allowed to be used as long as they're used in free and open source software. Um, and some have noted that they did, what they did not add to this, this patent pool was their famous FAT file system patent or the patents along with, uh, that go along with that FAT uh, file system, which have been in contention um, for many years. Uh, and they have actually sued companies over using them. Right. Uh, yeah. So, okay. A bunch of interesting things just came up there. Uh, um, uh, I want to respond to the open source name thing a bit more and then jump back over to the Android thing. So I think it's also worth noting. Uh, I, so I actually haven't read what, what Bruce Perrin said um, though. And for years, um, I think uh, my understanding was that open source was specifically coined, you know, just to appeal kind of more to, um, you know, the development methodology, partly because I think that that's, you know, kind of been long been a, a explanation of it. And I think that that did happen. Um, though I think it's worth pointing out that there's an interesting article written by Christine Peterson, who actually coined the term open source, uh, and she gave, it's called How I Coined the Term Open Source, and she, in, in that article, she said, well, at the meeting, uh, I kind of threw the term out there to see if anybody would pick it up, and the meeting was about making the, was specifically about marketing, was specifically about uh, or messaging around a name that would be less confusing. Um, but I think that because of various things that played out, even if that was the original intention, because of various things that played out after the fact, uh, we do have this division, even regardless of the term uh, choice, uh, between you know development methodology and uh, user freedom for you know the freedom of users' sake. Uh, and so building on that, you know, you're, you're talking about Android, and I completely agree. So uh, I um, I really, I guess I was being really negative about negativity, but I really hate the state of uh, software freedom on phones right now. I would love to run a, uh, you know, the it's very hard... You, so your options right now are run whatever you know comes with your phone, or run the Android Open Source Project, or you can use um, and and you know if you use one of those two things, you know it might not be easy to do AOSP on its own, uh, depending on the phone. You you still might be able to use F. Well, you can use FDroid to use that for the package manager, which is pretty good, um, but you still the underlying system. Uh, is not usually entirely free, and for most users, even though there are some alternatives, uh, they're they're just sticking with what they get handed, right? So, um, and we should mention the alternatives. There's on the completely free front. There's a project called Replicant, uh, which is um, uh, sometimes a bit behind in the software, but does work really hard to make sure that there are no binary blobs or whatever. And then there's also uh, a distribution called Lineage OS, which is a, uh, um, which is kind of more uh, trying to build a more of a community distribution around Android that they release for, uh, um, you know, for various phones that they're, you know, with instructions on how to unlock them. And I think that all of those projects are great. But since there kind of isn't a community foundation in the way that there is on GNU Linux, it 
always feels like the free software community you you're you're always kind of getting what google is throwing over the wall and trying to scrape and cobble to try to get some sort of community related thing together after the fact i don't know that's how i feel about it i i wonder if if you have the same feeling yeah i i mean i think it's i think it goes deeper than that right you can't really run a free software phone because the modern phones the drivers just aren't there or the phone is half functional um it's it's it is possible but it is not practical there is a free software phone coming um and we'll see another one there was one many many years ago and it the project didn't continue there is another free software phone coming and i'm i'm sure that um we'll both be looking at that when it comes out we should shoot, uh, give a shout out by name it's the librem 5 by purism uh it's not out yet um but you know they've done a pretty good job as in terms of releasing uh you know software freedom respecting hardware so far and it looks like they are doing the right things of trying to have a kind of more community-based distribution for the phone where they're working with the GNOME and KDE communities and stuff like that. And I think that that's, that's very promising. Um, I actually, I hate to jump in. Uh, well, okay. No, I don't hate to jump in. So I'm, uh, so actually about a decade ago, I used to use something that was not entirely free called the N900, which was Nokia's project from before they got, right before they got bought by Microsoft. And it was the best. It was a GNU Linux phone that was actually nice to use in many ways. Didn't have free drivers. Um, many of the parts of it were free. but they And they also hired a bunch of the GNOME developers to develop the, the user interface, which was in GTK. And it was nice. I don't think this is a project you were talking about. I'm guessing you were talking about OpenMoco, which was a much more actually trying to be free system than the N900 was. Um, but but it, it did succeed in having something that felt like free software on the desktop. They had a Debian derivative. I don't know why the projects keep wanting to fork distributions for their own needs as opposed to just using the underlying distribution. But, you know, it was a Debian derivative that, and, you know, I even ran Emacs on it and NetHack. And, it, uh, um, and I'd love to see that world again where we have something that resembles the kind of communities, even though it wasn't completely community-oriented, but at least it resembles the rest of the space that I use in my free software life. Um, anyway, sorry, that was a rant. That it, Yeah, so... Um, I did actually have an open Moco. I think it was the Neo Free Runner. Um, this is a long time ago, so yeah. I, 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 I don't had the remember exactly. to the Free Runner, the nineteen seven. I, I don't remember if it was the nineteen seventy three. It was the one that was the version right before it actually worked at all. Um, okay. So mine was basically a brick, and then they released a new version that did somewhat work. Um, and we could, you know, we can, we could, and I think maybe we should have a whole. Uh, podcast about our experiences with Linux phones and PDAs because I had the first Linux PDA and I don't remember what it was, was called. Was it a Sharp Zaris? Uh, no, it was before the Zaris and, um, and it, it was came up in this little... I did also have a Sharp Zaris, though. That thing was the um, best. I mean, um, not very practical to use for, for much, but it was like way cooler than a Palm Pilot. Yeah, and I, I'll, we should we should just have a whole podcast about uh, Linux PDAs because um, I, I we we could talk. I mean, because I could even talk about how I created a whole system around podcasting before 
before podcasts existed. So before RSS feeds with embedded media, I had a whole system in place using rsync and, and a whole bunch of other systems where I literally created my own uh, podcast aggregator, but, but we should, we should put that um, to the side um, coming, you know, coming back to this conversation about running free, um, a free operating system and, and having control of your hardware a lot of people are concerned about this, not just in terms of Microsoft, but also in terms of Google and Android and, and now their new Chrome OS, um, which is meant to not only move your uh, hardware, but, but also your whole experience of the cloud. And, and Microsoft is apparently doing something very similar with their, their next version of Windows, where a Windows will be a service that you pay for, or maybe it'll be an ad-driven service. But you, know, you won't own your computer files. It may feel like you do, but everything will be synced up to the cloud and will be owned by Microsoft. And, and this, this idea of, of not owning your own computer is the total anathema to, to the idea of, of free software. Right. Um, speaking, speaking of Microsoft and their relationship to free software and open source and stuff like that, did you find it as weird as I did with people freaking out about Microsoft acquiring GitHub as if it was previously this bastion of freedom that was going to disappear in some way? Because, I mean, GitHub was never free. No, GitHub wasn't free. So, so let's just, in case we have uh, people who are listening who don't know what GitHub is, um, people that do software development, we use a system called Git to to manage that software. It's not always people don't always use Git, but it's one of the more popular software programs that people use to manage software building and uh, what we call version control. Um, let's, you know, we don't have to go into the into the, into the details of that. Uh, GitHub is a company that, that builds tools on top of Git to make it easier to use. Um, it was an independent company, and then it was recently purchased by Microsoft. Um, the, the, the reason it's a big deal in the free and open source software world is that many programs used GitHub uh, to to coordinate activity, to coordinate users across the globe. Um, and because it, because it was free to use, it was a very popular, um, it was a very popular system. It still is. And it, it also has features that many alternatives don't have. So Microsoft acquired them. Many people, including myself, were very concerned about this. So I did, I did feel that there was a certain amount of freak out, as you say, but at the same time, I think that there is a difference between something being practically not free and being owned by a company who has openly expressed hostility toward free and open source software as Microsoft has. So I don't, for example, think that the that people would have reacted as strongly um, with if Google had acquired them, even though Google is just as proprietary, if not more proprietary than Microsoft, because Google has never openly publicly, um, gone after Linux and free software as aggressively as Microsoft has in the past. I don't know if that I'd buy that Google's quite on the same degree. I mean, because Google does release more things as free software, but I do agree that Google is not a particularly user freedom or, or oriented organization in general, but they do support so a lot of user freedom efforts more than Microsoft does. I mean, Google Summer of Code, I think, is a very useful project. 
Um, even though I think Chrome, uh, I wish Chromium was also not a thrown over the wall type thing. I do think that those systems are are happening better than a lot of the things that have come out of Microsoft uh, historically. And I mean, you know, so, okay. I also don't think that, you know, there's a very old school, you know, Microsoft hating of, you know, M dollar sign sucks. I, I was very embarrassed to read my chat logs from, oh gosh, I don't want to say how long it was ago, but it was, and it was in college. And I found out that I had said like an M dollar sign sucks to my ex-girlfriend at that time. And, uh, um, you know, there's, there's this kind of old school, you know, hate on Microsoft, which is still, I think, valid to a large degree because they haven't really proved themselves better. But, you know, I think that if Microsoft, neither of us would be unhappy if Microsoft actually showed that they were willing to be a great participant. It's just that they haven't, right? Right. I think we should start to close this up a little Um I think I think the concern about Microsoft in particular. So first, I I do agree with you that that uh, Google is is at once uh, a more friendly contributor to the free and open source software movement than Microsoft is. Um, but I think that they are less user freedom oriented in the in that your data gets collected by them. They do a lot of pretty bad stuff around tracking users, uh, collecting mass amounts of data, um, not letting people opt out. Um, covert tracking and other things. So uh, I think many of us, at least um, I, I do, have a very complicated relationship with Google. Um, I do want to say one thing, which is that the activities of Microsoft around um, Linux on Microsoft—I forget—I forget what they call it—but yeah, um, where you can run an, uh, you can run Linux applications. I think it's Windows Subsystem of, for Linux. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Uh, it feels very much like the extend part of this embrace extend extinguish model. It's and yeah, I that's I agree. What, I agree. I mean, I, I'd even so. say that in some ways it's actually you know, it, I mean, it definitely veer. It's def. It definitely veers into the territory where you know you can see the possibility of extinguish there. Uh, right. Like yeah. it, it opens up. I, I know quite a few people who are like, you know, it's really great. I can run Windows now and I don't have to, you know, I can run all the Windows things and also run GNU Linux. And it's a more practical uh, run applications I used to run on GNU Linux. Uh, and uh, it's a more practical alternative to me. And, and it may be from a per user practicality perspective that that may be correct. Which is, I mean, in many ways, actually a sign to be alarmed if you are concerned from a user freedom perspective. So let's wrap this up. Uh, I know you had a news topic, and then we were, if we had time, we would talk about how we both organize our day. Did I have a news topic? Well, I, I had raised a news topic, but I think I, I said that I wanted to prep on it a bit more before we, okay. we talked about it. Uh, so let's let's jump right into we, uh, the beauty of. Oh, sorry. Yeah, well, we we brought, we already built the perfect segue, although it was like you know ten minutes ago, with you know by talking about Zaris, the sharp Zaris, and uh, um, and you know that era of PDAs. So that's that that's directly jumps into the thing that we wanted to talk about. That's true. So uh, we have the the extremely exciting topic of how we do. 
um, how we do our to-do list and organization. Uh, and it turns out that both of us use the same tools or roughly the same tools. Um, and that is we are both um, Emacs users and we both use a tool called, called org mode. Um, and I'm going to see if I can explain org mode in just a few minutes. It's, it's, a, it's a very a comprehensive. One. It is. So <laughs> it's, it's a frame. I would say that, that Emacs itself is going to follow this definition. So see if, if you agree here. Uh, org mode is a tool by which you can create structured documents that interlink and add extra functionality such as to do uh, project management, time management, budgeting, and things like that, all in, in one tool. Yeah. Oh, you know what? The Actually, the org mode website has a pretty good description in one sentence. Let's read it. Org mode is for keeping notes, maintaining to-do lists, planning projects, and authoring documents with a fast and effective plain text system. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's pretty good. I mean, it's, so, so there's a couple things that, that it can do that it that doesn't cover. So you can author papers with it, embed other documents, embed images. You can write web pages with it. You can use it to track your time um, and do billing. Um, and you can also do things like uh, accounting in it. Um, but, but what I use it for primarily is to keep track of my to-do list. Um, and the way I do that is my to-do list system, and then I want to hear yours, but my to-do list system is roughly based on something, uh, and I'm going to butcher his name, Tom Lemoncini, I believe, uh, wrote about in his book, Time Management for System Administrators, where he created something he called the cycle system. And the cycle system works very simply. You write down everything you have to do. Then you give it a priority A, B, or C. A is everything that has to get done today. Like this bill is due. And if they don't, if I don't pay this bill, they're going to shut off my electricity. Um, B is something that you should do today, um, but is not mandatory. And C is everything else, right? So you should have either no A items or very few A items. Um, you should have a bunch of C items. I'm sorry, a bunch of B items and, and a bunch of C items. Um, and the idea is that every day you go through your, you go through your list, you sort it by priority, and then you just work your way down. I have a, I slightly modify that and that I, and that I schedule my time and work out, um, certain periods where I work on certain types of activities, but, but basically that's what I do. And org mode has all of those functions built in. It also can let me tag items. Um, so I can uh, say, well, this is related to a certain a certain sub project or a certain task. Um, I also use it to do things like keeping my shopping list. So when I think, oh, we're out of milk, I can put it in org mode. And then when I'm um, at the supermarket, I can look and I can say, oh, right, milk. Um, it, it, oh, one of the other nice things it has is uh, I can write. It's not just little one sentences. So I can put whole conversations or whole paragraphs in my to-do list. And so, for example, um, if I have a to-do list that involves me making a phone call to a customer service representative, I'll keep all the notes about that phone call in my org mode. Um, so I'll, I'll write down the phone number, maybe who I spoke with, what the resolution was, how long the phone call was. And then when I archive that, and, when, and I this one key, and it just kind of puts it away and stores it um, in a separate file, 
uh, I can always pull those back up and I can do searches on my on my old to do items. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so for my setup. So okay. So um, my setup is kind of all over the place in some ways, uh, and uh, uh, I I think that actually people looking over my shoulder and looking at me doing things in org mode has probably resulted in more people that I know picking up Emacs than anything else in my life. Uh, uh, and, and that's, so I, in many ways I consider org mode Emacs killer application. And you're right. It, it is similar in Emacs in that it's kind of so overwhelmingly customizable that, well, I think people get overwhelmed uh, like they look at it, and then if you see an advanced dork mode user, you're like, "What are they doing?" And it's just like looking at somebody piling in, in an alien spaceship. Uh, but the the key thing. So actually, I remember when I started using org mode, I had previously been using John Weekly's planner system for Emacs, uh, and then I heard that John Weekly himself switched over to org mode. And I thought found that very annoying. Like, you know, you're the maintainer of this project. Why would you switch over to this other thing? And then, so I decided to try it out for a couple of things though. And then I'm like, well, I'm not going to become one of those org mode users. And then very quickly became one of those org mode users. Uh, so, so here's, here's how, I recommend picking up org mode. So you, okay, wait, actually I never gave an explanation of how I use org mode. So maybe I should do that first and then get into how I think people can look at picking it up. So the way I use org mode is I've got a variety of files that I keep track of things in, some of them for work, some of them for my project, some of them for all sorts of things. And uh, um, and what's nice about org mode is you've got these trees of tasks and it's the tree aspect that's really key. It's an outliner. So you're making these outlines that, you know, you go various levels deep, and then you can hide and show the things you want to look at at the moment. What's really nice is that you're not just making an outline of tasks to do. You can also, you know, as you said, dump in whatever information you want to do. And this actually becomes really critical for me as a person, well, so org mode in many ways, I think kind of, you know, changed my life because I have a strong case of attention deficit disorder and what, and I work on a lot of things. And what's really nice about org mode is I can work on many things, leave them for a while because I'm distracted and working on something else and then come back and have all the context, well, most of the context of what I was doing and be able to just jump right back in. Uh, and that's really great. So there's also something, so now you're thinking, well, now you've got all these files and they're all over the place. How on earth do you make sense of it at all? And org mode has something called the org mode agenda. And you can pull that up and it gives you a list of all the things that you've scheduled for today, you know, for that week and stuff like that. And I found that to be very helpful, although sometimes I stop using it and then come back and use it again. Uh, um, but I... I it's very nice and that you can make sense by pulling together everything that really needs to be at your level of attention in the agenda. Uh, one more thing I'll say before handing it back over to you is that um, the org mode capturing system, I think is really great. Uh, the capture system allows you to set up key bindings so that just within a few keystrokes, no matter what you're doing, you can start 
filing an issue for one of your kind of the most common places that you might file a to-do item or like a meeting note or scheduling an event. So if I'm like, oh, my boss just said we have a meeting at 3.30, I can just hit, you know, a couple keystrokes and suddenly I'm typing in that that thing. Or somebody on IRC says, oh, you should really do X, Y, and Z. That's how you'll be able to get this program working well. I can just hit a couple of things, uh, but- buttons, and then I'm filing into my notes file my miscellaneous notes file about various things. Or, you know, if I've got a longer-term project, I can file to-do items as I think about them. But what's really great is it's a very natural way to start just typing in, and you just kind of, I find it very helpful to just type and think about what I'm doing and just type what I'm thinking, and then start expanding those into to-do item things. Now, the big problem is that org mode... uh, you know, what do you do when you leave your computer? Um, so what there is in mobile org application that I've never used um, that apparently some people like, but I think it'll never be able to capture the co- complexity of the uh, org mode setups that people might set up. But there, what I what I found funny to find out that you and I both do similar things is that I use something called the hipster PDA and you use apparently a pad of paper. Uh, to do something very similar. So the hipster PDA is a very 2000s idea. It was this blog post that was kind of tongue-in-cheek making a joke at the height of popularity of PDAs, which were these devices that you know let you do to-do entry and calendaring and stuff like that. And it said, here's the hipster PDA. It's just a stack of index cards, a binder clip to hold it together, and a pen. And it's got a drawing feature, and it's got you know to-do taking, and all this type of other stuff. Well, it turns out that's actually what I do for my offline stuff. I, you know, I'm like, okay, wait, I need to do this, this, and this. And I record them as index cards. And then I'm also able to do drawings and stuff on the go. Uh, and uh, so I, that's my synchronization system. It's very low tech. Uh, anyway, throwing it back over to you. So, so a couple of things. Uh, so I, I think we should talk about some of well, how I do synchronization because it is slightly different than that because I have two different types of synchronization. Um, we should talk about... Um, where I think org mode is weak. As a user and a lover of org mode, I think we can talk about where I think some of it, it does fall down a little bit. Like and, collaboration? Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> uh, collaboration is one that I hadn't, I wasn't even going to go to. Um, but the, uh, and then the third one is some features of org mode that I wish I was using, but I'm not. So let me start with um, synchronization. So let's talk about this problem that I mentioned earlier. So I, um, let's say I'm at my desk working on an email or working on something else. And then I say, Oh, where are they? I need milk. So with, as you're, as you say, I could just use capture and, and it says, Oh, what do you want to capture? And I say, I want to capture that I need to, to do list for milk. And it says, okay. And it goes ahead and it stores it away. And I can go back to what I was doing. Uh, I use, so I store all my org mode files in Nextcloud, which is a self-hosted file synchronization service. Um, Nextcloud syncs all my files to all my computers. So it's, it's, it's a piece of software that runs on a server that I own. Um, and it syncs up my desktop, my, my desktops, since I have several, um, my laptops, um, and there is a client for the phone. Uh, on the phone, I then use another program called Orgsly, which is similar to mobile org, but but slightly better. Um, but I will say that doesn't always work. Uh, synchronization is is not always timely. 
Um, Orgsly doesn't always pick up on when it needs to reload the file. Um, files can get clobbered over one another. It's honestly, I, I find it almost unusable unless I'm really specific about ordering about taking those, spe- those steps in a particular order and being very careful. Um, and I frankly can't recommend it for that. I can't recommend the synchronization for that reason. Um, what you talked about in terms of hipster PDA is probably useful. Um, what I do for my day, since I need a little bit of more structure than org mode provides, um, by default is I take a piece of paper, I write down time slots. So I break everything down into 30 minute time slots. Um, and then I will group activities, um, that I need to into those slots. I'm um, glad I do that every day. With, by default because I don't think that that <laughs> I was going to take it. I was going to take uh, action with your uh, with your org, org mode is uh, uh, it doesn't provide enough structure there. No, no, you can absolutely and and you could and I could actually have a schedule by which uh, I could say, well, this is going to happen at two o'clock. This is going to happen at two thirty, and this is due at this time. And I could even do with org mode. I could even schedule that into my into some external calendar that would get synchronized. But no, I'm talking about just by default. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't let me sort of move um, time slots that easily. In fact, I that's one of my complaints. So we'll talk about my th- three complaints with org mode um, as an org mo- as a happy org mode user. So the first one is actually that that I wish I could adjust my schedule um, with the same kind of ease that I that, so in org mode you can you can just with one keystroke. Uh, move an item up or down in the in the outline. I kind of wish I could do that with time, right? So I could just I could just click like, oh, this is now going to be at you know five thirty or you know five o'clock or four thirty, um, and I wish I could just play around with that. Um, if I could do that, that would make things a lot easier. But I haven't found any easy way to to write that um, in org mode. So that's the that's the Wait, first one. I'm sure it wouldn't be that question. hard. Do you think that that's yeah difficult to program or is it this one of those things that you haven't gotten around to at this point probably probably more the probably more the the latter um i'm not the best elisp programmer um it's the lisp i'm the least familiar with Uh, despite my username i'm not a very good emacs lisp programmer um and frankly i find it confusing because every time i do kind of pop into that world i get overwhelmed with how much i need to know <laughs> what's your what's so, your um, i don't think we mentioned your handle what is your handle yeah so i'm e- i'm emaxin but that's we can have a whole discussion about why uh i chose that chose that <laughs> handle even though i'm not the best emacs <laughs> okay. user okay I, I don't mean to derail continue no no so so the second thing i think is is an issue is that um we have we and I, I and you're an active developer on the internet have come to write applications that take um, that have you know remote what we call RPC right so there's some way of 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 working with data through some well defined interfaces um, org mode doesn't have that right org mode's interface is being able to parse text but you can't say Oh, I want to. I want to have an action that's just create a new task easily, it, programmatically. So it it is possible, but it is non. I, I have something funny to say here, but I'm gonna wait. Uh, that, that, that there's an, that there's an org mode website. Oh no no no! I'm, it's I'm, even funnier. Or, I'll, I'll okay. wait. But so so we'll we'll wait. So um, so I kind of wish that was the case. 
Um, as you say, collaboration is a major problem. There's no real easy way to for multiple people to be working on an org mode document at the same time. And I think that's really sad when you consider how, how beautiful Emacs itself is in regards to having multiple windows open. But we don't have something like Collabora Online um, or, or LibreOffice Online for Emacs. There, it just doesn't There is exist. a mode that allows you to multi-user edit at the same time. I forget what the name is. James Vasile was just mentioning it recently on Twitter, and I don't remember what the name of it is. Uh, okay. Uh, so so let me just let me just finish up with the last thing that I wish was working on my system, and I have tried to get working many times but never succeeded. Um, and that is, according to all the org mode documents and the manuals, it is possible to integrate org mode with email such that I could uh, say reply to this email from within Capture. Say, you know, so let's say I'm reading an email. I could I could go into Capture. It would link to that email from within the Capture mode, and I could say, oh, here's what I want to say, but I don't have time to say it right now. And I could put that in my to-do list so that when I'm in my to-do list, I click on the email and it opens up my email and it just has everything. Yeah, for I me. have that. Um, I, I can. I can give you that uh, the code for that. That's actually really okay. easy to set up. So, well, the, the the problem is that I'm unhappy with all the um, I'm unhappy with all the Emacs uh, oh, mail yeah. user okay. agents, all the you email clients. You have to really buy into the Emacs worldview and also read your mail through Emacs, which I do. <laughs> which I so I used to uh, in the, in around 2000, I used uh, an email program called VM, um, which is essentially at this point appears to be either unmaintained or under-maintained. I won't say it's unmaintained because then I'll get some kind of complaint. So I'll just say it's, it's, it doesn't get the attention it needs to be an active program anymore. And I think the last update was something like five years yeah, ago. Yeah, I used to use Gnu's uh, and now I use uh, MU4E, which is uh, quite nice. Yeah, so I've looked at MU4E, and you know, we could maybe even have a whole discussion around that. I, I tried to convert to it um, and had some synchronization issues. Oh, really? So uh, I, I would love to I would love to just talk about that maybe either online or offline, where you just show me like how to Emacs properly. <laughs> uh, getting that to work would be great. So you were going to say something about collaboration. Uh, oh yeah, servers. I'm going to say something. Although I also want to interject that uh, have we lost all our e- non Emacs using potential listeners already in the first episode? Uh, uh, I'll throw out there, if you're a Vim user, there's a Vim clone of org mode, or a couple of them, and I don't remember what they're called. And they're apparently semi-good, but not as good as org mode. So uh, you can explore that. And there's also a couple of other to-do uh, command line to-do things like Task Warrior that are also apparently fairly good, but not as good as org mode. Uh, but anyway, uh, that sounds super smug. We were like, we're not going to be smug people, and now I sound like super smug. And in fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you. So the funny thing I was gonna say was peak Chris Weber. Like, you want to hear the most peak Chris Weber you ever heard? The thing you ever heard? Okay. Sure. So back in the glory <laughs> days when I was running, uh, when I had my N900 phone and it was great and it had the flip out keyboard and everything, I did do task mm-hmm. man- uh, synchronization to my phone. I used Git as my synchronization tool. Over SSH, I would SSH onto my computers using uh, from my phone to synchronize it to uh, synchronize Git, and I ran Emacs on the phone itself and ran Org mode on the phone, and that 
<laughs> so wait, not subversion, but yeah, Git? I was using Git. Yeah, I was using Git. Okay, because that's you must have been a pretty early Git user, because that would have been in the uh, very it was early two thousand nine. Uh, okay, so not not as long ago as I yeah, as I yeah, thought. It's not okay. that long ago. Uh, well, yeah, that is long I, ago. That's I, a I decade ago. Because I had see, I had the Sharp Zorus. Yeah, the Sharp Zorus was bef- well before the N nine hundred. That was like two thousand. And and then I had the thing before the Zorus, which I I have to go look up because I don't even remember what it was called. Um, and it was the first Linux PDA, and it didn't even have a keyboard; it just had a touch screen. Um, and it was awesome, but totally useless. So, so um, I'm not done with how peak Chris Weber this is. Oh, uh, sorry. Yeah, oh, it gets even continue. more extreme. So. I wanted to not miss my appointments, uh, which, you know, I would sometimes miss when Emacs would pop up the notification. So I actually extended Emacs's notification mode so that I would have Emacs connect to XMPP or Jabber, as, you know, it's also called. And it would send me instant messages about upcoming appointments from Emacs running on my desktop to my phone. Yeah, wow. or my desktop, you know, it was XMPP. So I just got them everywhere. It was the best I had. And I started working on code so that I could uh, I could send it instant messages and it would write out to-do items and stuff like that or give me my agenda. And then I, I didn't finish that. But yeah, that, I feel like that's pretty peak Chris Weber right there. So I looked up what my PDA was. It was called the Agenda VR or the Agenda VR3, excuse me. And uh, and you're like, I've never heard of this. And of course not. Um, there's no reason you would have ever heard of this. Yeah, um, I'm not even sure but if, it, you know, if, gosh, if you're, if you're 18 years old, you know, if you just became legally an adult this year, you may yeah. have never heard the term PDA in the time of your life in which you were, you would be aware enough to pay attention to it. Yeah, so so PDAs were these um, devices that were pre-cell phone. They were personal digital assistants, um, and they were roughly a cell phone-sized objects that would manage your calendar and your to-do list. Um, and the, the smartphone effectively took over that whole space. Yeah, because at that point it was there was no well, the smartphone did, and so I remember for a while I had a phone and I had a PDA. And it was ridiculous because I had this really powerful PDA and then I had this dumb phone and all it could do is make phone calls and, and really crappy texts. Um, but yeah, as soon as, as soon as we had smartphones, um, it was, it was pointless to have two devices. Oh man. You know what? So, oh, since we're getting into free software, mobile devices on this episode already, I should tell you what my dream computer setup is because it's not using a laptop. My dream okay. computer setup for years has been, and I feel like I feel like Google Glass screwed it all up. Uh, it uh, um, has for years been to have an overlay over my vision where I can run that I on a computer that I have complete control over, um, not with a camera. I'm not interested in surveilling other people. Or if it has a camera, put a physical shutter on it so people know whether or not you're recording. You know, but. Uh, what I'm just interested in is having, you know, I want to be able to run my own programs and just have them overlay over my face. And let's be honest, I want org mode directly overlaid over my vision. And Morgan is convinced that this will someday become available. Morgan's my spouse. And this is how I'll die, is that uh, I will just walk <laughs> into traffic looking at my org mode agenda or maybe playing a roguelike. 
and then I'll die. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that got that really sounds, dark there, that, that, That's a lovely vision. Should we just end oh, yeah, there? Oh, yeah, sure. Why, why great say if we just, anything we just stop, and, and then we die, and then we play the music, and that's the that's end of the, end of the show. show. Goodbye, everybody. Um, See you next time. <laughs> great first episode. Um, or maybe 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 just overlay a sound of like a crashing. So uh, like, no. <laughs> well, well, you just did it. You did it for uh, us. Okay, there we go. Uh, okay. All right, okay. we're done. So anyway, we should probably – we should, yeah, we've been – so how long have uh, we been it talking? It's about uh, almost an hour. About fifty-five minutes, yeah. So almost an hour. So we're gonna we're gonna let our audience go, and uh, hopefully we'll have uh, another podcast soon, and we'll be putting out more of these. We'll be we'll be diving deep into some some technical topics. We'll be talking about some policy stuff. We're gonna have a ton of links to everything we talked about, and um, when we have the website, which will be LibraLounge.org, uh, we will have. We will be soliciting feedback. So if you're a new listener, you're if you, frankly, if you're a new listener, either you're listening uh, now because you decided to go back to the beginning, or you're one of our friends. So please, if you're if you're <laughs> one, if you're not at either of those, and you have suggestions, um, we could really use them for either topics or suggestions on how we could structure things better. Um, but until then, thank you, everyone, and we will yeah, see you next fun. time. Take care. You've been listening to Libre Lounge. You can find and subscribe to us at LibreLounge.org. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Our theme music is Bossa Nova by Joff, which is waved into the public domain under CC0 and which you can find on OpenGameArt.org. If you'd like to support Chris Weber's work on this and other user freedom projects, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash c-w-e-b-b-e-r thanks for listening see you next time